I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. In this episode, I read from my book, How to Plant and Grow a Church, and I finish Chapter 4, How to Plant a Church Bivocationally or Self-Supporting. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I want to share a little bit of good news. You ever had those weeks where you just feel like you, you know, you're doing a lot, but you're not getting much done? That last week was like like that. I was just busy. I mean, I, I was, you know, working hard, trying to get a ton of stuff done, but I was just doing a lot of stuff. And one of the reasons is. I was busy buying a used car. I needed to buy a used car, so I was, you know, busy looking and then scanning Craigslist and going and visiting different places. Anyway, when I went, we went to this couple's house. We looked at their car. We started negotiating the price. And in the middle of the negotiations, the man asked me, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a minister. Would you like to come to my church? And I gave him a card and he said, yeah, we'd be interested. And so I gave his wife a card as well. We ended up buying the car. He gave me a minister's discount. He lowered the price. When he heard I was a minister, that was awesome. Anyway, before church on Sunday, I was getting ready for everything. I was talking through all the, the planning and you know having a little holy huddle up in the front. And what do you know? That couple walks through the back door. And so we sit down next to them. And Kyle Plum preaches this super hard line lesson on the flood. I mean, just it was just as fiery as fiery can get. And I was just sitting there going, oh my gosh, these people are either going to love this or they're going to hate it and they'll never come back again. Afterwards, I got a text from the man. He said, hey, I really loved your church. It was a challenging lesson. It was exactly what we needed to hear. And we're definitely going to come back and we're going to bring our kids. And so I was so, so happy. I was grateful to God because I was like, oh my gosh, that was such a challenging week, but God worked through it. And so very encouraging. We're going to spend time with them today. They invited us to go go to a rodeo, bronc busting, roping, all sorts of stuff. Haven't been to one in a while, but this guy comes from a rodeo background and invited us. I mean, it's been a long time since a non-Christian couple has invited us to spend time with them. So I'm pumped up about that. So anyway, God is working. Hope you're having a great, great day. Today, I'm going to be talking about chapter four, how to lead and plant a church bivocationally or self-supporting. And if you're thinking about doing that, I would want to encourage you to do it. Of course, you need to really think about it, count the costs. There's a lot of sacrifice involved, but there's nothing more satisfying than being able to go and plant a church where there was none. And it's just absolutely thrilling. So I want to give you all the support I can. And if you need any help or have any questions, please feel free to email me at rob at robskinner.com. I love to hear your comments. So here we go. Chapter four. Singing and song leading. When my wife and I first started working together in the campus ministry, we held an outdoor service near the campus of San Jose State University. The regular song leader wasn't there that Sunday, so I did double duty as song leader and preacher. 
We were dating and not yet married at the time. And so I asked ever so gingerly after the service was over, hey, what'd you think of the worship? She said, matter of factly, the sermon was good, but I don't think you should ever lead songs again. (laughs) I felt two inches tall. And this comment introduced some doubt into my mind about the future of our dating relationship. We worked through it, but I learned that you need good preaching and song leading to have an excellent worship service. I've been lucky with some plantings and had good song leaders who joined the team early and jumped in to lead. More recently in our Tucson planting, at one of our first gatherings, I had to step in and lead a song or two. I took a couple of hesitant looks over at my wife while I led the songs, but made it through okay. It wasn't great, and we had to borrow a song leader for a while from a related church in Phoenix about two hours away. If you don't have a song leader, pray and search for one. If you still don't have one, buy 20 songbooks and start practicing a core of 20 songs that you can lead and sing with relative ease. Outdoor services. During the Oregon summers, we would meet in beautiful Lithia Park for outdoor Sunday services. We were so small that we never had to reserve space. We just found a relatively secluded patch of grass and circled our lawn chairs. It was fun and beautiful. The biggest challenge with outdoor services is that people get confused about where you are meeting. You have to over-communicate to people where and when you're gathering. Another issue is tithing. Whenever you switch locations, you can count on your contribution dropping. Have a plan for giving in any location. How to manage your schedule and time. Time management is one of the biggest challenges of a bivocational planter. If you aren't careful, you'll get burnt out. If you work a Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 job, here's my starting recommendation for a planter's schedule. Daily. 7 a.m., the golden hour of Bible study, reading, and prayer. Take a 30-minute prayer walk to benefit you spiritually and physically. 9 to 12, work. 12 o'clock lunch. Use that time for calls or take a short nap. It's also a great time to have people come and meet you for lunch and discipling time. 1 to 5, work. 6 p.m., family dinner. 7 o'clock, Bible studies. 10 o'clock, lights out. Weekly schedule, Monday night. In the evening, ministry planning and preparation night. Use this time to think ahead and plan out your week. Set up your appointments. Ask yourself, who's the most open person at this time and when can I meet with them? Spend 15 minutes coming up with the outline of your midweek and Sunday lesson. You will feel immeasurably more confident if you know what you're going to preach on the following Sunday. Don't allow more than 30 minutes for this. Limit yourself and force yourself to come up with a workable idea for your Wednesday and Sunday sermon. Decide on what type of an evangelism activity you're going to do with the church on Saturday morning. Door knocking, passing out invitations at a community event, serving evangelism at the park. Come up with something and notify the members of your church. Tuesday, Bible studies with seekers. Meet with seekers to study the Bible with people. Your goal is to have at least two good Bible studies going on always. Your only goal is to make disciples and baptize at this stage. In a way, it's grow or die. Wednesday, midweek worship service. Midweek is family time with your church. Its purpose is to train, instruct, fellowship, and encourage one another. Your lessons don't need to be monumental, I have a dream type speeches. Shoot for practical lessons that encourage and call people back to the reason why you're there in the first place. Talk constantly about your vision and dream for the area. 
Train and equip your members in how to help someone become a Christian. Go through the first principles of the faith. Go through a book together on how to win friends and influence people. Build, build, build. Take time to pray together. Here's a typical program. 7 o'clock, gather, sing, and then pray for 15 minutes. 7.30, lesson. 8 o'clock, announcements and direction. 8.15, fellowship, and then discipling groups. Discipleship group after worship. One of the biggest challenges for the bivocational church planters is how to have effective discipling relationships. There is not enough time for everything. One thing that's helped me in the past is to use discipling groups. Instead of meeting every discipling partner individually for a one- or two-hour discipling time, I'd gather my discipling partners together at my home for a 60- to 90-minute discipling group. I'd share a scripture or two, and then we'd have time to share how we're doing, confess sin, and help each other out. I try to keep it positive, encouraging, and yet real and honest. New churches overflow with younger Christians, and their greatest need is a lot of encouragement and belief. I've incorporated these discipling groups into the DNA of our church in Tucson. After almost every midweek lesson, we break up into our small groups and have discipling groups with discussion questions. It's not complete discipling. It doesn't cover every issue or every need. But it is a safety net and starting point for one another involvement in our church. Thursday, Bible studies with seekers. Thursday is great for Bible studies. If you don't have a Bible study planned, use it for preparing your Sunday lesson and switch your Bible study to Saturday night. Friday, date your wife. Take the night off and have some fun. You need to blow off some steam and after a hard week of of day job and night ministry, you will need the relief. I look forward to Friday nights to catch up with Pam, go out to dinner or a movie and have some fun. Get a babysitter for the kids and renew your love for your wife every week. Don't sacrifice your marriage on the altar of your ministry. Don't worry about what people will think in your church. When you say you can't join them, they'll respect the fact that you honor and preserve your most important human relationship. Your marriage needs regular maintenance. Take care of your wife, treat her well, and take her out regularly. The best book on marriage I could recommend to you would be John Gottman's book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. His section on the five magic hours is worth the price of the book alone. Saturday, morning and afternoon, Evangelism Day. Looking back at my time in Oregon, I wish I'd used my Saturdays differently. I would often work on Saturday selling real estate. I would work six days a week and then preach on Sundays. Of course, That was during the Great Recession, and I was struggling to survive economically with a family of five. But I still wish I would have used Saturdays for evangelism. Think about it. More people are free and available on Saturdays. You can have appointments more easily. It's the perfect day to emphasize evangelism. Use your Saturday mornings for door knocking or servant evangelism. Use the afternoons for Bible studies. Saturday is your one day when you can make unhindered progress evangelistically. Don't waste it. Evening, sermon preparation. It would be nice to have your sermons completed before this, and if you can, do it. However, the reality is that thousands of preachers across the country are doing the same thing you'll be doing, putting their sermons together. My recommendation is to have your idea crystallized by Monday and then use your quiet times throughout the week to study out the topic and develop it. Saturday at night, put it down on paper. Use a timer. Buy an egg timer and set it for 45 minutes. Tell yourself that good or bad, the sermon will be done in 45 minutes. You'll be amazed at what you can get done in 45 minutes. 
Don't allow yourself to sit and stew. Force yourself to write or type the whole time. If you do that, the ideas at some point will start flowing. Don't panic. Trust that your lesson will be there and ready on Sunday morning. Sunday. In the morning, church worship and lunch together after church. Afternoon. A family outing or fun activity. Get out and go swimming or go to the lake. Make a picnic and get out with your kids. In the frenzy of church planning, if you don't slow down and spend time with your kids, you'll miss their growing up. Evening. Family dinner and devotional with your wife and kids. Family movie. Dealing with pressure and stress. You will need a plan to deal with the inevitable pressure and stress you will face. Starting a business or church from scratch is stressful and has the potential to break you spiritually, mentally, and relationally. Here's some things that have helped me. Find joy in the work itself. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, Solomon says, A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? This scripture points up a valuable insight. Your satisfaction needs to come from the day-to-day work you'll, you'll be doing. There'll be long periods when you don't have the kind of results you want. If you reserve your joy and happiness only for those times when you accomplish your goals, you'll be dissatisfied, uptight, and rarely experience joy. Keep in mind that you're doing this work for God, and you're doing it free of charge. That is noble, and keep yourself from beating yourself up too much over the setbacks you'll face. I remember a quote from Clint Eastwood about the films he had directed and his opinion of them. He merely responded to the interviewer, you do the best you can. That's become a recurring phrase in my life. I do the best I can. That helps me because it keeps me from comparing myself to other quote-unquote super ministers, whether those in our family of churches or those leading megachurches of thousands. If you can honestly, honestly say, I do the best I can, then you can sleep well at night. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do the best you can. Cast the anxiety you're facing on God through prayer and let it go. From time to time, stop and ask yourself, am I happy? Am I enjoying this? Am I having fun? I choose to make the motto of my recent church plantings, having fun, loving God, and making disciples. Because I know that if I'm not having fun in my relationship with God and mission, there's probably something wrong in my walk with Him. I'm probably letting the pressure squeeze out the joy of walking with God and seeing people's lives change around me. People are not attracted to dour, unfriendly, stressed-out churches and ministers. Learn to find your joy and satisfaction in doing God's will daily. Learn to take a break. Another method of dealing with pressure is the practice of taking a night off entirely from the ministry. Most church planners are hardworking, driven individuals. They feel awkward and uncomfortable slowing down and quote-unquote doing nothing. Force yourself to take at least one night off from the ministry. Say no to all appointments, calls, or administration. Force yourself to procrastinate for a night. It'll be a blessing to you and your family. Alternate preaching. As mentioned before, the pressure to prepare and preach multiple times weekly and every, every week of the year is a massive burden over time. Start thinking about finding someone who can step in once a month so that you can take a week off from sermon preparation. The result is that you'll be fresher and will have time to recuperate, read, and refresh your mind and body so that you can fill the remaining three weeks with powerful lessons. 
sharing the pulpit offers a chance to train someone else. After we hired an intern by the name of Chris Schwarzenberger, he started preaching once per month. I was able to take notes and give him feedback to help him develop his preaching. Small churches are fantastic proving grounds for aspiring ministers. Chris went on to become become one of my favorite speakers and now leads his own church. Make the ministry work for you and around you. Unlike the members of your church and those who are attending, you have two jobs, your day job and your ministry work. Because of this time constraint, you'll have to set boundaries on your time and travel. If you don't, you will soon burn out and your mental health and family will suffer for it. That's why I'd recommend making people meet you at times and places convenient for you and your family if possible. As mentioned before, if you live in the center of your target mission field, this should be a reasonable request. If you live out in the country, your desire for space and peace puts pressure on those you're trying to help. It's beneficial to have a home that has a room dedicated or easily convertible for appointments. If you don't have this, you'll need a convenient coffee shop or McDonald's that you can use as your quote-unquote office. As mentioned earlier, it's smart to use group discipling to your advantage. Jesus did this, and it worked for him. You'll find it very difficult to have 6 to 12 distinct appointments for discipling plus appointments to study the Bible with seekers. This is in addition to taking care of your physical family. I would recommend having a separate discipling time with your wife, your intern if you have one, and perhaps one other significant associate leader. Beyond that, do your best to distribute the discipling throughout your church and have a discipling group to train future leaders. You may get heat from this because everyone will want your personal time with you. However, if you can't limit your focus to a few, the church will quickly stop growing based on your limited ability to meet needs. Use Saturday for group service slash evangelism. Dedicate a day for evangelism. Saturday is the best day for this. Most people in traditional jobs are off and available. Saturday morning between 10 and 12 is a fantastic time to reach out. What kind of outreach should you choose? Almost anything in which you're meeting new people is excellent. I would schedule I would schedule weekly evangelism for one hour using either invitation cards or door hangers. Direct evangelism works and shouldn't be avoided. If you don't do this, what are you doing that's more important? The first year of your plant should have a limited and direct focus. Meet and invite as many people as possible to your fledgling group. I'll talk more about technique in the chapter on evangelism. Read and listen for great ideas. You'll need to produce well over 100 lessons during the first year of your church plant. Unless you don't mind sounding like a broken record, sharing the same scriptures, stories, and personal anecdotes you need, you need a way to keep new ideas and insights flowing into your mind even as they're flowing out weekly through your teaching and preaching. It's a truism that leaders are readers. One idea can change your life and the lives of those who listen to you. There have been countless times in my life that I was stuck mentally up against a wall of discouragement, and like Paul mentions, perplexed. I often found the solution to my situation through a book that I was reading at the time. I'm convinced that God guides through the books you read. The better and more varied your reading, the greater your ability to adopt ideas that others are using. Often the best and most popular books are those that take a scriptural idea and adapt it to a business environment or application. Writers make millions from this type of truth reconfiguration. You'll be able to see the scriptural foundation or reference back to the life and example of Christ and use it to enhance your messages. 
A case in point is John Maxwell, one of the best-selling writers about leadership over the past few decades. He started as a denominational minister and switched professions to work as a writer and speaker. He's a master of taking biblical principles and redressing them as business axioms. You'll need a continual flow of new ideas and insights to keep growing and learn as you lead your church. I average a book a week, but I'd recommend a minimum of one book per month that specifically address your situation. Throughout the first year, I'd structure it in this way. Three books on leadership, three commentaries on New Testament writings like Acts, Romans, Philippians, etc., three books on church planting, three books on marriage, family, and people skills. In addition to this, use your time spent working out or in your car to listen to personal development audio. I'd strongly recommend using services like audible.com that provide audiobooks that you can listen to while you're working out, working in the yard, or even driving. Not only that, but there are many sermons and podcasts available. Shut off the classic rock channel and turn on something that's going to make you better. Follow Paul's advice when he says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, 15-16 Your time is precious, and you must convert unproductive time to productive time. Recruiting Help Winning teams have winning players. Ask the Cleveland Cavaliers about this concept. Before LeBron James joined them and then rejoined their team, Cleveland was a perennial cellar dweller. LeBron's presence has taken this losing team to the postseason finals year after year. Imagine yourself as the player manager of your church planting. You're the strongest member of your team, but you're always looking to add other stars to your roster. Through baptisms and move-ins, you should always be looking to enhance your church's ability to grow in size and health. Your time should be spent focusing on people who are typical and eager. You want seekers who will, in turn, be able to help others once they become Christians. You have to be very careful about how you build your church. If you concentrate only on those who have high levels of personal, emotional, financial, and health needs, your church will stop growing. Those converts will absorb an inordinate amount of time and effort tackling personal demons. I know this may sound unfeeling and uncaring, but consider how carefully Jesus chose those who followed him at the beginning. He knew they'd be the ones on whom the fate of the world would rest. Consider the demon-possessed man who wanted to follow after Jesus had driven the demons out of him into the herd of pigs. Jesus said no and told him to go back and tell others what God had done for the man. Carefully build your church. In addition to those baptized in your church, be aware and alert for those wanting to move to your area from other related churches. You'll need to be sensitive to avoid stealing sheep, and you may may get a scolding from a church leader for talking to a person interested in moving to your church. However, you still need to encourage those who are looking to make a change. Old friends, acquaintances, retirees, college transfers, job transfers are all opportunities to build your church. If the person has expressed an interest in moving, you're free to talk to that person. Encourage that brother or sister to communicate directly with this church leader so that you can maintain healthy relationships with with churches in your family. Interns. We hired a part-time intern when we only had eight people in our church in Oregon. Adding leaders will help your church grow. Don't wait until you quote-unquote have the money to think about adding part-time interns. God will provide. 
I'd recommend starting with inexpensive interns. Sometimes they're called $50 per week interns. You can ask people to devote five to 10 hours a week to help you reach out, set up service, or a combination of both. You can ask college students to spend the summer with you to reach out. When we started our church in Ashland, we asked two young people, Nate Bigby and another person, to come down and help us reach out on campus. They met the first two people who became Christians on the campus at Southern Oregon University. I nicknamed Nate, Nate the Great, because of his courage of going on campus all by himself day after day until he found an open person. Nate is now an evangelist in the Corpus Christi Church in Texas, but he'll always be in my Hall of Fame because his outreach set in motion a campus ministry that's converted many others over the years. Develop an exit strategy. At some point, your church will get to the point where it needs full-time ministry leadership. Hopefully, you'll come to a crossroads where the church is growing so much that you can't handle it with your limited schedule. Start planning early for this. Here are your options. Go full-time. Once you've built up the numbers and financial giving, go full-time and let go of your day job. If you feel this is your gift and calling, go for it. Groom a successor. If you don't have the desire, the gifts, or the calling for professional ministry, you'll need to nurture a minister for your position. That's the value of having interns. You'll always have a pool of talented people who can take off where you left off. These leaders will often share your values and carry on more closely the trajectory of the church you've begun. Hire a replacement. Now, this is a tricky option. The difficulty of stepping down and turning over the reins of leadership to an quote-unquote outsider is easier in theory than practice. Those coming from other churches don't know the history and the lore of the church planting. They have their own philosophy of ministry that may conflict with yours as the founder. In this situation, I'd recommend moving out or moving on to avoid a church split. You don't want to be the backseat driver that creates a church split down the road. In 2012, I received a call to plant a new church in Tucson, Arizona. It was an opportunity for me to return to full-time professional ministry and to build on a fresh foundation. However, my first response was to say no. I had trained a replacement in the person of Chris Schwarzenberger, but when he went to a college ministry conference and spoke, he got approached by a leader of a large church who wanted him to lead his campus ministry. I couldn't match the salary for him and his new wife, Amy, and so they left. I was happy for them and their career, but I was devastated to lose such a talented couple in our church. Shortly after this, I received the call to go to Tucson. With no one to replace me, I feared the church collapsing like a house of cards once we left. I told the person recruiting me, recruiting me that unless they could find a competent couple to replace us, I just couldn't do it. Within a couple months, they discovered a great young couple, Elias and Rachel DeLoe. They took over and did a great job in our place. The church continued to thrive, and we were able to move on with peace in our hearts and minds. Planter Profile, Joel Landy I met Joel Landy at a conference in the early 2000s. He shared with me that he'd planted a church in his hometown of the Hamptons, Hamptons, New York. I was intrigued, and he said that he'd heard a lesson entitled The Titus Project from a man named Marty Fuquay. In it, he inspired people to someday plant a church in their hometown. During a period of instability in the church around 2003, Joel thought now would be the perfect time to see that dream realized. He felt the need to step out of the boat like Peter did and test the authenticity of his faith. Joel wanted to use a time of turmoil as an opportunity for God to work. 
With the verbal support of the New York City Church, he moved to the Hamptons, about 100 miles away from New York City. He had no financial support. When he and his wife, Julie, arrived back home, he was interviewed by the local paper for a piece on The Local Guy Comes Home to Be a Minister. He planned his first service with no one but his family. Forty members of the nearest ministry drove 75 miles to support his inaugural service. They had 110 people at their kickoff. Throughout the next two years, he baptized 15 people, and attendance averaged around 30 people on Sundays. Three and a half years into the planting, he came to a crossroads. He'd called a visiting family to a Luke 9, 23-26 commitment to carry their cross. They rejected the challenge and instead attacked Joel and his leadership. The conflict threatened to split the church. Around that time, Bruce Williams, a church leader in Los Angeles, visited him and asked him, Are you happy being here? Joel responded that being there was good, but probably not best for his family at that time. In 2007, he moved back to Long Beach and went back to work in the paid ministry. It was a gut-wrenching decision for Joel and his family. Looking back, Joel celebrates the victories God was able to bring about. He converted an old high school friend who had become a 747 pilot. They'd studied the Bible and had counted the cost to become a Christian. The man had been recently just, just missed being scheduled to fly to Indonesia, where the 2004 tsunami had hit the island of Sumatra. The man understood God had saved him, and the reality of Jesus' question, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his soul? In spite of the difficult decision to leave that mission field, Joel is grateful for the people and family he was able to reach out and save. When asked about church planting, he shared, if you feel you have an obligation, then you need to do it. I felt like it was my duty to do this. Thanks for listening to How to Plant and Grow a Church, Chapter 4. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask your help. First of all, hit the subscribe button, and then let your friends know about it. Maybe send them a link or post it on your favorite social media site. Also, read one of my books, How to Plant and Grow a Church, or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. You can find these on Amazon, and what I'd really appreciate is if you read it, please leave a review. It really helps people know uh, where to find the book. So pray for me and for the church here in Tucson, because my goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.